0: Good evening, ladies. I think I think our time's up. I don't see any more on there. So good evening. I'm so glad you are all here. Thank you so much for coming, being a part of um, our summer Women in the Word. This has been a great way to spend uh, our Thursday evenings in June, these beautiful summer nights. At, um, This Bible study. So, thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is always a joy and a thrill and an honor to be here with you. So, um, I'm glad you are here as well. Um, How many have you? This is our fifth week and our last week for our summer Bible study. So, I was wondering, is anybody here for the first time today? I think Debbie's got hers. Yeah, thanks for coming. You're here for the first time. Thanks. Anybody else? Thank you for coming on this last night. We meet again in September, so come back and join us. Um, But I'm also interested in knowing if there's anybody that came all five weeks. Who came all? Oh, my goodness. Look at that. Very good, you guys. You get a star. Um, That is great. And I want to say, you are awesome. OK, now I use that word "awesome" for a reason. Um, you might notice that it is at the top of your outline, "Awesome." And I've been studying and thinking about that word over the past few weeks, and I really think "awesome is a word that should only be used to describe God, should only be used for God. God, the awe-inspiring, living, loving creator of the universe. He is awesome. But awesome has become one of those trendy words, and I use it very much myself. It means uh, great vacation was awesome, good news is awesome, great idea, that's awesome. You know, I talked to somebody, some salesman on the phone, he said awesome four times in like ten seconds. It's a very trendy word, and you know what I mean by trendy. Those are words that become very popular, they almost take on a meaning of their own. And... um, it's happened through the ages. My mom, who's 85, when she was young, things were hot. If they were cool, they were hot. Hot rods, and she talks about hot this and that. Um, when I was a teenager, which was a long time ago too, um, things were cool. And I think we still say that, but things were cool. If we liked something, it was great, it was cool. Now, cool and hot meant the same thing, but really those are opposites. That's what happens with trendy words. And so awesome has become the new cool, I think. Everything is awesome. And um, It really, I have a story that where it's just really over the top. A couple years ago, I went to the woodlands. I have a grandson and a granddaughter, Dylan and Hallie. So they were probably about seven and four. And Dylan loves Legos. And so there was a Lego movie. Is there anybody that saw that Lego movie? Oh my goodness. Okay. It was, you know, little Legos and they're building Legos. It was all Legos. But the thing about the movie that I remember, they sang this song in the middle of it Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Everything is awesome when you're living the dream. Now, I don't know what kind of dream these Legos were living, but it was awesome. And so that stuck in my head, and the whole rest of the weekend, everything was awesome. Dylan and Hallie sang everything. Everybody in the whole Woodlands that was under 10 years of age was singing, Everything is Awesome, and I thought... That word is totally overused, but tonight we're going to use it the way it should be used. We're going to use it to describe God, the awe-inspiring, living, loving, creator God of the universe. You know, we've been talking um, and eavesdropping on conversations with God. We've been looking at people in the Old Testament that talked with God, that communicated with Him, and we've really been saying that God initiates prayer. God initiates prayer. Prayer begins with God. Was that a new thought for some of you when you first heard that? I can remember when I first heard that thought that God initiates prayer, and I contemplated it, and um, it was was really, uh, I was probably about 30 years old. I was a young a uh, mom, married person, um, and I had prayed my whole life. Now, not always consistently and not, not always very well, but even as a young child, I believed God heard my prayers and he answered my prayers. And I can remember one time when I was nine, I'm the oldest of four kids, my little brother was born, and he was very sick, he had a respiratory condition, he had problems with his lungs, and he didn't get to come home from the hospital. So my mom came home and he had to stay there, I knew he was very, very ill. And I remember praying every night um, and every morning, really very many times during the day, God, heal my little brother and let him come home. So I totally believed in prayer and believed God heard my prayer. But when I began to realize that God is the one that begins prayer, it changed the way I prayed. I began looking for God's presence in things around me and thinking about, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to know in this situation? What do you want me to learn in this? I began to look for him in scripture, look for him in other people and things that were said. And it would begin a conversation for me with God. And that's what prayer is. It's a conversation. It's talking and listening to God. Or maybe we should say listening and talking to God. Um, because God initiates prayer, so how does God initiate prayer? We've looked at several different ways these over the last five weeks. First week, we saw God talking to Moses, and Exodus tells us face to face. He talked to him face to face as a friend talks to a man, and we saw that long um, discussion and conversation back and forth between Moses and God. The next week, we looked at David, King David, and you remember that story. He had committed adultery and he had committed um, murder. And uh, God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to him, and he tells David a story about a man with a lot of sheep who takes another man's one and only sheep. And David's outraged. And he says, well, that's horrible. That man should be killed. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. And David knows that that is God talking to him. And he begins to pour out his heart to God in confession Then the next week, we looked at Hannah, and Hannah, God spoke to her through her situation and in her pain, and so Hannah goes to God, pouring out her sorrow and her longing and asking God for a son, and then Hannah is comforted by God through the words of Eli, the priest. Last week, we looked at Daniel, and I love the prayer of Daniel because God speaks to Daniel through his written word just like he speaks to many of us today, through his written word. And, uh, you know, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, and he reads that the Babylonian captivity um, will end after 70 years. And so David Daniel's in the middle of the captivity, looks at his calendar and thinks, hey, 70 years is almost up. And so that word leads Daniel to go to God in prayer. And he begins this heartfelt, beautiful, God-centered um, conversation With God. And that brings us to tonight, and we're going to look at Job's prayer. Job's prayer that um, begins with God revealing Himself to Job, and that brings Job to an understanding that God is truly awesome. And then at first, Job is speechless. We're going to see he he can't even speak. And then he goes on and we're going to eavesdrop on Job's prayer of worship. But before we get to that prayer, we need to talk a little bit about what's going on with Job. Some of you may know this story. And we're going to talk about it um, just so that we can catch up to that point. You know, Job is a very interesting book in the Old Testament Old Testament. It's a dramatic book. It has people entering stage left and stage right, and right in the middle is Job. And um, lots of stuff going on. Job, God shows up kind of towards the end in a very dramatic special effects kind of way and um, there's lots of long poetic speeches in the book of Job. In fact, only the first and second chapters and the last chapter are in prose. All the rest, which is about, what is that, 38 chapters, our poetry. So that's why Alfred Lord Tennyson calls Job the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. So it is a beautifully written, beautiful piece of literature with a rich vocabulary, lots of metaphors and similes, every subject talked about. We have geography and geology and astronomy. We're gonna look at some of that. We have biology and meteorology, all sorts of subjects in the book of Job. Beautifully written. But Poetry can be hard to understand. So we may avoid reading Job sometimes because it is difficult and confusing. Although it's poetry, I want you to know that it is a true story. It's a true story about a real person. Job is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. He's mentioned in Ezekiel. It's not on your verse sheet, but in chapter 14, verse 14, Ezekiel talks about Job along with Noah and Daniel. And then on your verse sheet, I have. Uh, the verse in James. James mentions Job. He says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. want you to remember that. James calls God merciful and compassionate in this story of Job. So Job is a real person. The book of Job takes place probably in the same time period as Abraham. Um, No one really knows the author, but uh, theologians think that Job might have written the original and that later it was translated into Hebrew by maybe Moses or Solomon. But what makes Job relevant and important for men and women throughout the ages is the subject matter. Job is about suffering, painful, devastating, Intense human suffering, and it is undeserved suffering. And so, Job and his friends ask those same questions that we ask today when we're in the midst of difficult, painful times those times that we don't really understand. They are going to ask those same questions. And so, in Job, we come to understand that suffering is a mystery. It is a mystery, and an even greater mystery is how suffering can bring the sufferer into the presence of God in worship and in praise and love and um, wonder. We're going to see that tonight, that great mystery, how suffering brings the sufferer into the presence of God. In Job's prayer, we learn much about God, and I think it's going to affect how we respond to God The story begins with a description of Job and you looked at that in your questions in the first chapter, verse one, talks about Job being an uprighteous, blameless, God-fearing man who feared God and turned away from evil. And that's kind of Bible talk for saying that God is, I mean that Job was an honest, good guy who loved God, hated evil. And then it goes on, and we read the conversation. The angels come before God, and Satan is with them. And God says to them, says to Satan, have you noticed um, the righteous God-fearing Job? And Satan says, well, sure, but no wonder. You have given him everything. You've blessed him. You've made his life wonderful. Do you see what Satan is really saying to God? He's saying that worship is basically selfish. Selfish. People worship you because of what they're going to get. And we're not going to talk about that, but I just thought it was an interesting thing for maybe you to contemplate. What is your motive for living a godly life? What is your motive for loving God? Is it just blessing and gain? That's what Satan thought. And so God says to him, okay, you can take away all those things from Job, but don't touch Job. And so that's what happened. And so pretty quickly, um, Satan goes out, and disaster falls on Job. He loses all of his livestock, and he loses all of his servants, and the house falls down, and all of his children are killed. And this is what Job says. So let's look. I hope you still have chapter 1 open up. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He worshipped. Did you guys see that in your questions? He worshipped in the midst of all of this suffering. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So in all this, in all this pain and loss and suffering, Job worships God. And so um, chapter 2 opens up, and here's the angels coming back before God, and Satan's with them. And God says, hey, did you notice Job? Did you notice his response um, in the midst of all that loss? And so Satan says, well, um, yeah, but he still has his health. If you took away his health, then surely he would curse you. And so God says, okay, he's in your hand, but spare his life. So let me say something real quickly here about Satan in case anybody's confused up there. Uh, Satan was created by God. He was an Angel. Um, it says that he was like had the highest rank of the angels. Um, he's a created being, therefore he's a, he's an angel, and he was because of this position. He became very prideful. In fact, he wanted to be like God so much he wanted to be God. And so he leads a revolt with some other um, dissenting angels. Of course, they are unsuccessful. And so he has a moral fall, and he's judged by God. But the full sentence of Job, of God, on Satan is still, still kind of left until the end of times, until Christ returns, and we see that in Revelation. So we're not going to go into all that, but we know that, at least during this time of Job, that Satan still had access to heaven and also access roaming the earth. But Satan is not equal with God. He is created by God. He is not our powerful. He does not have the attributes of God, and this is important to know. He is not omniscient. Satan does not know what you're thinking. Now he understands human nature and he's very clever, but he does not know what you're thinking. He's not omniscient, God is all knowing. Satan also is not omnipresent. So if he's in Texas, he's not in China. So let's hope he's in China. So he's not omnipresent and sometimes we think that. He is not, but he has many of those underlings, his minions, the the demons, he has many of those out there doing his bidding. So they're throughout, but Satan is not um, omnipresent and he is not omnipotent, he's not all powerful. God is uh, is omnipotent and all powerful and he has given limits to Satan and we see that in the book of Job. But one thing we wanna remember, Satan is real and Satan has the same mission that he's always had and that is to turn us against God, to try to uh, turn us away from following and worshiping God. So with that said about Satan, let's move on to um, the story. So now God has given him permission to go out and to um, kind of attack Job and so that's what happens. Quickly, Job becomes ill with painful, oozing sores all over his body. And I think he must have been in great pain. Um, And we see his wife respond to this in Job 2.9. Do you remember what she said? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, but you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job says, so we receive good and not trouble from God? And we can kind of see now, did you ever think, wonder why Job's wife wasn't killed when all the children? Now we see why Satan left her. Yeah, she was not an encouragement. She was not helping the situation. So still, Job does not um, sin. Then we see Job's three, f- oh, this is a very important point. Do you get the picture on Job here? This is something that Satan does not understand. That Job, this answer that he gives here, it shows that he loved the giver, not the gifts. Job loved God, not the blessings. Satan did not understand that. that couldn't, he could not understand that. That Job loved the giver and not the gifts. So at this point, Job is pretty sick, and he has three friends show up. They're going to comfort him, and he's so bad off that they sit in silence for seven days and seven nights, and... um that is their shining moment, people, because once they begin to talk, it is downhill um, from there because they don't really do a very good job comforting him. They try to, but they use wrong theology, uh, faulty ideas, and they really basically say, well, Job, you must be a sinner that's done something really wrong for this to happen to you. That's what they say to him. So instead of comforting him They condemn him, and then Job is left with trying to defend himself and trying to show that they're wrong, and everyone really just ends up asking, why, God? And it's chapter after chapter, and this is beautiful, poetic, but it's almost exasperating because they don't know what we know that God and Satan have had this uh, discussion. They don't know that, but they think they do. And so the one thing that we can learn from this exasperating discussion of dialogues is what not to do when we go to someone that's suffering. One thing we don't want to do is act like a know-it-all. Act like we understand what's going on with their suffering. We probably don't. In fact, very... Probably, we do not know what's going on. We do not have the big picture. God is the one that sees the big picture. It's really um, past our human um, understanding to really grasp why somebody else would be suffering. Only insight from God can provide any meaningful understanding of someone's suffering, someone's pain, and someone's loss. When we understand that God sees the big picture and that we do not, our faith can grow in the midst of those hard times. So the friends did not understand that, and this discussion goes on for many chapters. And then God shows up in Job 38. So let's turn back to that, and we're going to look at... um, God, and he is going to show up in a mighty way. Now, ultimately, he's going to vindicate Job, but first he wants to bring Job to a right understanding, to a deeper, more intimate understanding of who God is. So let's read, um, starting with verse 1 in uh, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Okay, now, let's stop right there because I want to see two cool things. The first one is, here's God. He is in a mighty, blowing storm. It's probably violent. It's a whirlwind. God speaks to Job out of that. That would probably get Job's attention. So the first thing that this conversation begins with, this mighty visual picture of um, this storm that God's speaking from. The second very cool thing you see here when it says, Then the Lord... Now, before this point, every time they talked about God, they used the word God. And in Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. It means mighty one. But here, we see the word Lord. And Lord, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. Yahweh is that relational covenant name for God. And so with this God, using this name, the Lord, we see God restoring his relationship with Job as he reveals himself. So let's go on, look at verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So you see here, right off the bat, instead of answering Job's questions, he asks questions of Job. And he's going to go on to ask more than 70 questions of Job. And in these questions, he is revealing who he is so that Job comes to an understanding of God. And the first thing he says there, he's um, talking about knowledge, God knows has all the knowledge. God is omniscient, Job is not. And so these next things really point that out. So let's read a few more verses. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse eight talks about the seas and the oceans. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. So he's talking about how he set the ocean and seas in their place and they are within boundaries he did that and he said thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed and then he goes on and he talks about other things um, in nature and if you go up to 22 it says have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which i reserved for the time of trouble And then in verse 25, he says, Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. You see this beautiful language here that sometimes is a little hard to understand, but he's saying... I even take the desert where no one is and bring rain so that grass comes up where no one can see. And I really thought of a story at a time that I had a similar experience, I was snorkeling, um, I was in college, I was with my family, we were in the Bahamas, my dad had a boat, and so we were in the Bahamas and we were in this beautiful place. And I love to snorkel, I don't know how many of you have snorkeled before, but you know, you're looking at that ocean, it's all blue, and then you go down below and here's this whole beautiful world underneath and it's incredible. So we were snorkeling on this reef, we were at a very isolated spot, a little island that was, nobody lived on it. And I'm looking at this reef with these beautiful tropical fish and fans and sea urchins, and I'm overwhelmed thinking, this is so beautiful, Lord, and if I wasn't here, no one would even be looking at this, and tomorrow I will be gone, but this beautiful creation of yours is here, and I felt so small, and I thought God was so big at how vast his creation is, how much is out there, how generous and creative that he has this beautiful underwater scene that no one's even seeing. He's that creative, that generous. It's like the desert where he pours the rain and grass comes up even though there's no one there. And then when it talks about the weather and the hail and the snow, I think, you know, even today with all our technology, ladies, we cannot know the path of a hurricane. You know, I I have this memory. A couple years ago, there was a hurricane in the Atlantic. Um, I'm from Miami, Florida, so I'm always looking at them. And this meteorologist has 10 ways the hurricane could go. He says, if the wind comes down, it could go over here, it could go here. And he literally had 10 little squirrely things on the TV screen. I mean, it was humorous. I started laughing. I thought, I would not even do that because it makes you look. But he could not figure it out. With all our technology, we cannot know the path of a hurricane. You know, we can't do anything about the tides. There's high tide and there's low tide, and we can't change that. That is God. That is the power and the omniscience of God. And then he goes on. He talks about more things. We don't have time. But chapter um, 39, he starts talking about animals and and the different ways they are. Um, You see in there that um God's world is not arbitrary. It does not lack control. God is in control. It's, he's the one with power. It's his provision. It's his care and creative beauty. Have you ever thought, how does a bird know how to make a nest? How does the bird know that, that little tiny creature? God, it's God's creative um, power, omniscience, his mercy, his love, his beauty that we see all around it. Verse after verse like that, read all of these chapters one of these days, Um, he pours all this out to Job sitting there. And then finally he comes to chapter 40, verse 1, and he says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Okay, now this sounds kind of harsh to you, but Job, in his defense of himself, his self-justification, he came sort of close to being demanding of God. In fact, on your verse sheet, I have Job 31, 35. Um, This is one of the places where Job, in his frustration, says to God, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. This is legal terms. It's like he's calling God into court to make a statement for why this is happening. And God, after saying all this and pointing all of this um, creation and omniscience and omnipotence of God, revealing this to Job, he says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And Job's response, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He is almost speechless. He has no answer for God. He is so small. He realizes I am unworthy. I put my hand over my mouth, Lord. I have no answer You know, Job has heard from God, not the reason why this was happening. Instead, he has seen who, who God is, and Job is humbled. He is speechless by it. Sometimes we think humility, being humbled, is a bad thing. You know, we live in a society which applauds the proud and the self-confident and the can-do, you know, in-charge personalities. And so we think then that humility must be wrong. And the truth is, as one theologian puts it, there is something both profoundly healthy and holy in being small and reduced to silence. It's a good thing. A definition of humility is knowing who I am in light of who God is. God is the living, loving, creator God of the universe. And I am his creation. I am his beloved, a daughter of the Most High King, but his creation, he is the creator. To know that we are small, yet accepted and loved, and that we fit into the exact niche in life that a loving God has carved out for us, how comforting is that? How peaceful is that? You know, it leaves us to walk along with God in humility. What a great thing, and we know that that's good because Micah 6.8, we read this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We're called to walk humbly with God. So Joe is um, humbled and he's silent, but God has more for him. So I just want to say when we have a correct view of God, our complaints can turn to awe and adoration. And that's what God is doing for Job. He's giving him a correct view of himself. So he continues on. He's going to tell him more. Verse 6, he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? What God is saying here is that Job and their friends, in all this discussion they were having and condemning Job and then Job trying to justify himself, with all this self-justification, he's actually saying that God is unjust. That, um, and he says to Job, will you put me in the wrong so that you might be right? You know, how do you think that you can contend with God? And so God gives him two visual aids here. He's going to talk to him about two of his largest cre- uh, creatures in his creation. One is called in scripture the behemoth. Now, that is a land creature. Some think it's maybe a giant hippopotamus or maybe uh, elephant or even some think a dinosaur. But it's a giant land creature. And then the second um, animal he's going to talk about is the Leviathan, And that was a giant sea creature. Some think that was a killer whale, or maybe a great white shark, or maybe even a giant crocodile. And with the tragedy that happened in Florida, we know how ferocious and how strong crocodile. Maybe a giant crocodile. But at any rate, these are two visual aids that God says to Job to help him to understand the power of of God and to think you can't even control or contend with my creation. How can you contend with me? Once again, God's power and his majesty, his sovereign, his wisdom, his justice, his mercy is all seen in these verses. To act as if God is incompetent or unjust is absurd. And so now Job does reply to God. After he says all of this, Job, I mean, God says to um, Job, answers the Lord in 42. So now turn to chapter 42, verse 1, and then Job answered the Lord and said, and he's going to answer him first with words of praise and worship. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides? Well, let's stop there with no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Here he has realized God is powerful. He is sovereign. He is in control. No plan of yours can be thwarted, O Lord. And then he goes on with words of humility and reverence. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That is something that God said to Job, and he's repeating it back. And then he says, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job's confessing that he was foolish and ignorant and unwise. He didn't know. Once again, we see his humility, and he speaks with reverence of things that were too wonderful for him to understand. He realizes you are awesome. Lord, you are awesome, awesome in the true sense of the word. The dictionary defines awe as an emotion of mingled reverence, dread, and wonder, inspired by something majestic or sublime. It is respect tinged with fear for authority. Job is awestruck by God's revelation. Um, we have, I have a verse on your verse sheet. We don't have time to read it. The psalmist sees the same thing. In Psalm 111, the very end of it, he says, Holy and awesome is your name. And this leads Job to um, now speak words of confession and repentance um, to God. So let's look at uh, verse 4. Once again, he quotes God. God, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job quotes what God has said to him, and by saying that, he's acknowledging that that was a rebuke from God and that God was right. Job confesses, I was wrong. I didn't know you. I thought I did. But I was just familiar with you. Now I'm beginning to really understand and intimately know who you are, Lord. My eyes have seen you. And he's talking about his spiritual eyes. His eyes of faith have grasped the majesty and the greatness of God. Awesome. Awesome, God. Worship is our response to who God is. When we see who God is, we worship him, we adore him, we give him glory and praise. We want to express to him that love that is within us. Humility and repentance of pride are needed for worship and adoration. And we see both of these in Job in this place. Um, We see humility and we see repentance as he confesses here. And we also see that God restores his relationship with Job. He's revealed himself to Job, and now Job knows God in a deeper, more intimate way. Think about it. God never explains to Job what he was doing. Job never gets the answer to his question, why? But it no longer matters to Job because he knows God instead. And that can be our experience too. When we're in the midst of suffering and we turn and we praise God, then we take our eyes off that question why and instead we put it on God and we know who, we see who God is. And that changes our perspective. We know God is sovereign and in control. He's right, he's just, he's good. We know um God's display of wisdom and power has led Job to see his ignorance, has led him to confession and of his pride, and then on to worship God. Same can be for us. You know, at this point, nothing outside has changed for Job. Do you realize that? He's still covered with sores. He's still sick, he doesn't have children or any possessions, but internally, Job is completely different. He knows God intimately, and he worships him in humility. I read a quote just a couple of weeks ago on the back of our sermon outlines, and it said this. It was by A.W. Tozier, and it said, God is trying to call us back to that for which he created us, to worship him and to enjoy him forever. Job is doing just that. And Satan? Satan has been proven completely wrong He's completely wrong about the charges that he brought against Job. He's completely wrong in saying to God that it's only selfish motive that he worships you. Satan was wrong to think that God, Job only cared about the blessings. Job loved God. And Job's story has a happy ending. Um, Job's test, I mean, God's test of Job and his conversation that was. Um, Uh, revelation and correction it's deepened Job's love and reverence and awe for God and Job is vindicated by God not by Job's righteousness but by God's mercy and so I want to read a few more verses of what happens how Job is vindicated by God so verse 7 says after the Lord had spoken these words to Job the Lord said to Eliphaz this is one of the friends My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. And so they do just that. They take the burnt offering. Job prays for them. God accepts Job's prayer. And then in verse 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes... Of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And it says that he gave Job twice as much um, livestock and property, twice as many servants. He gives him more children. I guess he still has the same wife, but um, okay, we won't go there. And then the very last verse, 17 says, and Job died an old man in full of days. You know, the problem of suffering is incompletely solved but it no longer exists for Job. He was rich now, not because of the possessions, not because of anything that he had, but because of the relationship and the knowledge of the majestic and glorious Lord God. Awesome, you're awesome Lord. So what do we learn from Job's conversation with God in the midst of Job's severe suffering? This is a high, high prayer, um, but there's things that we can learn in the midst of it. Um, I hope that my response in the midst of suffering would be one of understanding, understanding that God sees the big picture and that I do not, that I am limited. I don't know everything that's going on out there. I don't know um, exactly what plans God has for me. Isaiah 40, 13 says it like this. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? I don't know exactly what God has for me but I do know that his plans for me are good because Jeremiah 29 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. I know God that is in control and that he can do all things. He's powerful. Now I can ask God why but he's probably gonna answer me with who? He's probably going to say, Deb, look at me. Walk with me. Follow me. And that's going to lead me to trust. I want to trust God in the midst of my suffering. I want to um, realize and trust that he has a greater plan for me than I can even imagine. And he has the same for you because he is awesome. He's awesome. From Job, I can learn to praise God in the midst of suffering. And we've already talked about that. When we praise God, we focus on who He is. We think about His character, His attributes. And we know so many of them. He is loving and merciful. He's great and powerful. He's our deliverer, our provider. He's just. He's holy. He's awesome. He becomes bigger as I praise him, and I become smaller. And that's the proper perspective. That's what we want. God bigger and me smaller. That is what builds and develops humility. So if you get stuck in the midst of a really hard situation and you can't think of anything to praise God for, I want you to go back and read these chapters in Job 38 and 39 and 40 and 41 and consider the world around us that God created. Consider that small seed that grows into a huge, beautiful oak tree or that seed that grows into a gorgeous flower in your garden. Or maybe you want to go outside and look up at the sunrise I've got a picture of one that I saw um, on Sunday as I was getting ready. It was early, and I was getting ready to go to work, and there's this beautiful sunrise. And you might want to look at a sunset or maybe consider a baby. Consider a baby being born. What a miracle that is. God's omniscient. God is all-powerful. Uh, Maybe you want to go to the Gospels and read about Jesus. Look at his compassion, his sacrifice, his great love. All of this brings us to worship. Worship is my response to who he is. I read a quote that said, Worship stems from appreciation of God himself, of who he is, not comprehension of all God's ways. That's very important to me. I I like that. I want to say it again. Worship stems from appreciation of God himself, not comprehension of all God's ways. And that brings us back to the mystery of how we can come to know God more intimately in the midst of our suffering. We don't understand it but we know it's true. Maybe you know it's true from your own um, experience. Maybe you've been in the midst of a really difficult and hard place and you have felt the love of God in the midst of it. You've grown closer to God. You've learned something about him in the midst of it. Maybe um, you know it from others' testimonies. Maybe like the testimony of Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary who went to India at the beginning of the 1900s. In the last 20 years of her life, she was bedridden due to illness. And it, um, her books talk about how people came into her room and how she ministered to them in India in the midst of her pain. And she has written how that relationship with the Lord grew deep, and sweet and intimate in the midst of that suffering. Or maybe you have a more present day example um, like Johnny Erickson Tata who when she was a teenager dove into a lake and broke her neck and from then on she's been in a wheelchair. How many people she has helped with suffering, countless people. She's written books as well, as painted things with um, her teeth, and she says she would have never known the depth of the love of God if she hadn't been in the wheelchair. And then there's this story of Job that we've looked at tonight, how through his intense suffering, he comes to know that God is truly awesome. Let's pray. Lord, you are awesome. You are so good and so mighty. And Father, we thank you for these prayers that we've looked at. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in so many ways through the world around us, through your word, through other people. Thank you so much for these women, Father, and for the way they have come seeking you and studying your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would bless them in a mighty way. Reveal yourself to them ever more intimately. Father, for that's what we want, to walk with you humbly, knowing you more, serving you better. Father, um, bless the rest of our summer. Be with us and protect us and bring us back. You are a mighty and awesome God, and we love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.